Can a 20-year-old novel help us navigate cultural debates today? I'm Constance Grady, and I write about culture for Vox. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. One of my favorite books from the past 20 years is Jonathan Latham's Fortress of Solitude. It's a beautiful, heartbroken novel with sentences like little jewels. And even though it came out in 2003, it anticipates the questions that our culture has been debating with increasing fervency since then, both in politics and in literature. How does systemic racism warp our intimate human relationships? When are white people appreciating Black art and when are they appropriating it? How did Brooklyn real estate get so expensive? And superheroes, what does it mean to love them? Fortress of Solitude tells the story of two boys growing up in Gowanus, Brooklyn in the 1970s, right as the neighborhood is on the verge of gentrifying. Dylan is white, Mingus is black, they're best friends, and they have a magic ring that lets them fly. But in this book, not even superpowers can stop systemic racism. This is an incredibly prescient novel. So when Jonathan Leatham stopped by the Vox Book Club at the end of May, I wanted to ask him, what was it like to write a book that anticipated these conversations so well? And what does he think of the current state of the discourse? I really want to know, has the conversation gotten better in the last 20 years? Or are we just stalling? Today's episode of Vox Conversations is a taping of a Vox Book Club live event before a virtual audience. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's really lovely that you picked up a book that's getting so very old now. It's nice to have them hang around. Yeah, it's a couple of years away from being able to drink. Um, But one of the things that I love about this book is that even though it came out in 2003, it really seems as though it anticipated a lot of the ideas and the conversations and questions that the culture would be getting really excited about over the next couple of decades. So there's literary ideas about genre blending and superhero narratives, and then also political ideas about cultural appropriation and about what white artists are entitled to do with Black art forms, all of which I want to try and get into a little bit tonight. So I want to start off by looking at this really fascinating through line of how Dylan ends up sort of cynically exploiting the culture and the music that he was exposed to as a child for street cred, even though it was not something that was a particular source of joy for him all the time. Really great question. I mean, the first thing to say is that this was a semi-autobiographical book in the sense most directly that the world it portrays is one that I grew up inside. The schools are schools I went to, and the street is a fairly direct portrait of an environment that I was exposed to. On the other hand, I had advantages of, I'm not even exactly sure how to describe them, but advantages of self-possession or 
perspective that Dylan is without. And I also had siblings, so I wasn't isolated in my experience the way he was. And in fact, a lot of this book comes from conversations with people I grew up with, friends from the neighborhood who I'd been lucky enough to hold on to, and first and foremost, my own sister and my own brother. And the materials in it were overwhelming. You know, I waited until my sixth novel to write anything even remotely autobiographical or to try to handle employing the texture and the complexity and the paradoxes of the New York City I grew up in, in this way in fiction, because I wouldn't have been able to do it until then. And even as it was, it was four years in the writing and a very challenging negotiation. And a lot of what I experienced as I wrote it was a deepening of my memory and a deepening of my love for the place that had come from and for the people that I'd known there. And also a, a deepening of my perplexity and my remorse and my anxiety about my relation to this stuff and how I'd held it at bay or neutralized it by turning it into a story or an anecdote or a kind of cartoon in my own recollection, in my own anecdotes about where I'd come from. And I developed an enormous amount of armor in a way. And the armor was often made of very jubilant stuff, music and ideas and kind of braggadocio street stories that I was wearing on my sleeve, but they were also functioning as a way of holding things at bay. They were negotiations. And so this idea of possessing and being completely incapacitated by one's own cultural experience became one of the subjects of the book for me. And in Dylan, I created a character who, in one sense, was doing a thing that was vicarious for me by writing about music he loved directly, which I actually began to do, ironically, right after I started getting some assignments to write about music. And I even interviewed James Brown for Rolling Stone, which was this incredible journey that I took. But I hadn't done that kind of cultural work when I wrote the book. I sort of made Dylan up as a counterpart who had done this instead. I realized it was, for him, going to be as much a kind of, um, what would I say, a double bind, a way of getting closer to things that he cared about, and also a way of managing anxiety or pain or remorse. And in particular, with the other characters in the book, he was going to be in a state of denial that he had personal experiences that were right at the edge of his tolerances, essentially, things he couldn't bear. It was like he was scratching at the inside of the armor, almost able to get out and almost able to connect again to the people who meant so much to him, who he'd lost. So it was all very intimate, in other words. It was a kind of allegorical version of feelings that I had myself. Mm. But I was advantaged. And when I say this, the simplest way I was is that I was so much more in touch through my siblings and through friends that I'd had continuity with and an ability to kind of fight my way back to the street where I'd come from by delving into this project and creating a kind of almost like a diorama where I could re-enter these childhood experiences and feelings. And I think it's so valuable that you're framing this question as something that is personal to the character. I think in general, the conversation that we tend to have about this can get very sweeping and abstract in different ways. But over especially the 2010s, there came to be this kind of intense argument over 
whether white people have a responsibility to write about black characters and whether, conversely, they just should not do that and leave those stories to people of color. And that argument has taken a lot of different forms and kind of splashes out into the mainstream at various times and then other times it's sort of simmering under the surface in more cloistered literary areas. But I'm wondering if you can tell me about how you've seen that argument evolved and whether it has seemed to you to be constructive. Wow. Well, I mean, I think, again, I'm going to anchor my reply to your very big question, yeah, which is one that includes for me the potential pitfall of trying to pontificate about the operation of fiction or, to paraphrase, very large conversations in the culture that I'm, I sometimes experience mm-hmm. a portion of or participate in, but I don't set myself up as any kind of expert or let alone like legislator of what is best. Of course. For fiction or for people who read it or for cultural conversations in general. I'd rather say that your question's a really apropos one in the sense that when I conceived this book and began writing it, it's long enough ago now. I started writing in 1999 on this project that it was a very different conversation and a very different context. And I was operating without the kinds of injunctions that exist now. And I could never have conceived writing this book with the same sense, for better or worse, of kind of heedless freedom. Not that I felt defiant or brazen. I didn't have a sense that there was some context against which these choices would be defiant. I was relying on instinct and also on my own reading life. Many of the books that had meant the most to me as a reader were examples of writerly transmigration into other. Reading things like Patricia Highsmith or Iris Murdoch, who almost always did male point of view. Reading writers like James Baldwin, whose masterpiece, Another Country, was in my mind, my most direct model for what I wanted to do with Fortress of Solitude, and where there are Black and white characters done with an unbelievable depth and intimacy and sense of scrupulous detail and care and love. And I felt, in a way, this was the key to writing any character, was to, even if they were difficult or painful or did terrible things, that you had to not just identify with them, that is to say, feel that part of you was inside them, but also something a little different from identifying with each of your characters is to love them each, despite what may be sometimes kind of beholding them with a kind of horror at their choices or their behaviors. Mm -hmm. And this was how I felt this book had to live for me, was as an act of transmigration of myself into others that was fundamentally a loving one. But I did not do this in a world like the one we live in now, where there are such specific ideas about, and as you point out, contradictory ones, that you can become enmeshed in arguments with others, but also just with yourself about, and I see this in my writing students all the time because they're younger than I am and they're conceiving their projects you know, in 2021, 2022. And this is basic to them. Mm -hmm. They can't think about wanting to write characters who are different from themselves without inheriting instantly an enormous freight of 
quandaries and anxieties. And it's meaningful. I don't think that this is some sort of mistake or unnecessary burden. I think that this is part of how the world has changed. And when you live as long as I have and write fiction, even as long as I've been fortunate to do, you can see your own operation move through time. The Fortress of Solitude would never have been written just as it was written or published as it was published 20 years later. Mm -hmm. It's an artifact now for better or worse. And one I can look at with a kind of fascination outside myself and think, oh, that was who I was then. And this was how I could think about these things. It was, you know, I'm proud of it because I think I did do not prescient things, but I worked right up to the edge of my own desire to understand things about gentrification and race and cultural appropriation on the terms I was presently given at the time. got to take a short break, but when we come back, given his novel Fortress of Solitude deals a lot with the broken idealism of the 1960s and 1970s, does Jonathan Leatham have any hope for the progressive movement of our time? Support for The Great Area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear Secret Sauce, Maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear Secret Sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Fortress of Solitude, I think, was the first time I encountered kind of a Gen X coming-of-age story. I had been so used to seeing this period of time as a baby boom coming-of-age story. And I remember like when I hit the 80s and that was the death of innocence being like, okay, everyone knows the death of innocence happened during Vietnam. Like, what are you trying? Why are you kidding me? And one of the things that I've really come to love about it is the way that it can work as a portrait of this sort of broken idealism from the progressive movements of the 60s and 70s. So things like Dylan getting put into inner city public schools as a way of making a political statement and that happening just at the point in time in which there's essentially a deinvestment from these schools. And that is something that has felt increasingly valuable to me to think about over the past few years as we've been experiencing what seems like a kind of renewed political energy from progressives in a way that I don't think I've seen within my lifetime. 
it's obviously quite different in many ways, but it can feel reminiscent of the progressivism of the 60s. So I'm wondering if you see it crashing up against some of the same kind of roadblocks that you depict in Fortress. Oh, well, of course, that first thing I should say is I hope not, desperately. The term I would use is there was a kind of frozen quality Mm. after the perplexities of the early 70s and then the crushing rollback or blowback of the Reagan era, this invention of a kind of, I mean, now, of course, it looks very mild and rosy compared to present versions of conservative, regressive fantasy about bringing back some earlier America. But that was what the Reagan moment was, was a kind of attempt to put lots of things back, Mm -hmm. even it back to some imaginary place. And living through that as a child with my parents, my parents were radicals and they were both proud and disappointed and confused by what seemed in one sense like this enormous result and the incredible degree to which that result falls short and can also be reversed. And as a child, my sense of conflicted investment in, embarrassment for, and anxiety about the things they believed were changing. And I was inheritor of this legacy and that the world was refusing it. Mm -hmm. It caused me enormous conflict and a long journey. I eventually came to see myself as what I would sort of diagnose as like a political depressive because I felt so kind of like my own desire for transformational politics was thwarted before it could even be my own. And I don't know if that's a Gen X feeling. I mean, I'm either the very youngest boomer or I'm the very eldest Gen Xer. And I've never felt that those identifications were terrifically helpful to me because I always felt sort of out of time in a way. But then again, my parents were very age of Aquarius. They were hippies and radicals. And so I guess being raised by their generation puts me, I guess, more in a kind of Gen X situation. And if I can speak for that generation or speak as one of that generation, we were a very politically neutralized Mm -hmm. and numbed cohort. I mean, certainly compared to those who've come along more recently. And I think rightly look at us like, why did you just sit there? Why did you just sort of index what was interesting to you instead of changing the world or seizing the reins from the boomers, you know, Mm. who have this absurd persistence in their ability to keep seeming like they're the managers of everything. Of course, I have no answer to that, but the reignition or unfreezing of radical possibility is the most important thing we've experienced. And I'm glad I lived long enough to be part of it. Because I think when you look at The Fortress of Solitude, you're looking at a book written from within that frozenness. Mm -hmm. The reconnection had not been possible somehow. It should have been, and I'm not making excuses for anything, but it just wasn't. We were entombed in the Reagan and then the horrible neoliberal consensus that follows it. You know, mm-hmm. It's so meaningful to me, and I'm so interested in talking about it as a time capsule, because I think it's become one, this book. It's telling you how confused we were. I want to pivot into the literary weeds a little bit more now. So sure. to 
start off with defining our terms a little bit. I know that in an essay you wrote for the LA Review of Books in 2011, you said that for this book, you prefer the term mimeticism to realism. So can you tell me a little bit why and how you're thinking about that distinction? Sure. Well, I've just always liked to trouble the idea that there's a consensus reality that realism can refer to. Mm -hmm. The word realism seems to already take way too much for granted. Mm -hmm. And I distrust it because I distrust received reality. Yeah, yeah. I think reality is constructed subjectively and as a rolling project by a collective consensus. I believe reality contains a lot of unreal things. I've always felt that dream and metaphor and the irrational are fundamental parts of experience and that an idea about realism that excludes sort of the fantastic doesn't make sense to me because my experience engulfs all kinds of unreal things Mm -hmm. and they're experienced and sometimes they're transmitted or shared. They're not just in my head. Ideology, art, a dream. Anyway, so I wanted to specify that I thought there was a tradition. And for me, it was one I'd barely worked in until this book Mm -hmm. that was about depicting the prosaic texture of stuff, you know, calling things by their sort of common names. Here's a ceramic coffee cup that pretends to be a paper cup from a Greek New York deli. And it's sort of very tangible and physical and it's humorously specific. And if I take some care to describe it in a work of fiction, that's mimeticism. I'm kind of like doing a lot of referring, which wasn't how I wrote up until a point where I did. I wrote books that were sort of set in a rubbery, fantastical, science fictional, or genre universe. I wrote crime stories that dealt with a lot of archetypal stuff, but I didn't spend a lot of effort trying to prove to you that my characters walked down a street that you could walk down, Mm -hmm. or mentioning cultural things that the reader would have in common with the characters. Like, oh, we both listened to that same Marvin Gaye song when it was on the radio and it meant a lot to us. And so for me, mimeticism was a way of saying, this book is going to use the trick, use the gesture of reference to these sort of undeniably common, tangible things. Mm -hmm. It's also going to do other stuff. So realism just didn't seem to me to be the word for it. And so when we get to that, the other stuff that comes in, My memory of 2003 was that at that point in time, the literary establishment was still not really sure how to feel about something that blended genre and brought in tropes from science fiction and fantasy into this sort of literary atmosphere. But you came out of science fiction magazine, so you would know better. Does it look to you now as though people are better prepared to sort of know how to think about and talk about these kinds of genre playfulness? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Everyone has just completely left even the problem that I thought I was trying to solve or the cause I was trying to slightly advance with my work. And it's such a delightful result. Now, no one even recognizes that it's an issue. You know, it it used to seem so. And this, again, speaks to my, my being in late middle age and having started out a long time ago. There were all these really irritating categorical arguments that seem to need to keep being had over and over again. And of course, some of them were merely categorical, but often they would disguise, or not even completely disguise, 
half disguise, mm-hmm. really annoying hierarchies, bogus hierarchies of value that only this kind of book could achieve the most extraordinary thing that if if books participated in these other kinds of literary modes, they could be good up to a point or something. That it was obvious somehow that the value of the literary was synonymous with only a few cherished modes. And they mostly excluded all kinds of extraordinary possibilities that then again, you'd see, you know, it, it made no sense. It was never a coherent ideology, but very few ideologies are, because you'd have across various oceans, you'd have someone like Kobo Abe or Italo Calvino practicing a magnificent transmission of all kinds of literary modes, mythic ones, folk tales, science fiction motifs. You could find counterexamples everywhere, but somehow this idea still seemed really important to some people, to a lot of people, I guess. And it would trickle down into received ideas. Now, you know, I was not inventing my rebellion against that. I had an unbelievably rich field of contextual examples. And there were people my age and people younger coming along immediately, Kelly Link. And I was just excited to be able to articulate that I thought these restrictions to the extent that they were successfully imposed. Of course, it was always incomplete or, you know, people only paid attention to them if they wanted to. It it wasn't like Nordic traffic signals where you might die if you go through the intersection. (laughs) It was more like ignoring a lot of people standing by the side of the road, shaking their fists and saying things. And if you wanted to ignore them, you could just ignore them. But I was excited to be part of a moment when it seemed like there was some defiance or I would actually sometimes confusingly to me, I would get credit for being an experimental writer. And I'd be like, that's not an experiment. Mm -hmm. My fiction is really sturdily conventional. It has like scenes and characters and situations. And just because I made one of the characters fly, find a ring and fly, does not mean that I'm an experimental writer. But that was, I think, a way that really anxious people would handle the injection of a fantastical motif or the melding of some genre elements into a mimetically textured novel was to say that they'd read some big experiment as though I was like Beckett or something. Well, that wasn't true. That wasn't what I was doing. In fact, I really wanted the book to feel extremely familiar and traditional in a lot of ways. My models were some of them even pre-modernist, but definitely I wanted it to feel like a coming-of-age novel, Bildungsroman, mm-hmm. and a saga of a neighborhood. You know, I was thinking of Thomas Mann's Budenbrooks. So anyway, it's great that it's a done deal, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, there may be like three people standing in this extremely trafficy intersection, still shaking their fists, but no one pays them any attention at all now. going to take one last quick break. When we come back, we'll connect characters between Fortress of Solitude and Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, and hear other insights and inquiries from the audience of this Vox Book Club event. (laughs) 
We have a question from Marcos. He says, hi, Jonathan, it's Marcos and the kids in Brooklyn. We are all here supporting you. That's nice. Do you remember I brought up that one of my students said that Fortress had a lot in common with Morrison's Song of Solomon? Do you think that Mingus and Dylan could be paired with Milkman and Guitar? Oh, it's a very moving question to me because, of course, my reverence for that book and for Morrison is so immense. I can't say that it was an influence because I actually didn't read Song of Solomon until shamefully, perhaps, till after I'd written Fortress of Solitude. But the idea that those characters could evoke that resemblance, it honors me tremendously. So I'm going to say, please pair them. Yes, if you can do it. (laughs) I'll just generalize from that for one second. I've always felt that my books, they didn't isolate. For me, they were in conversation with the books in the shelves of stores or libraries around them. Mm -hmm. And so I write them out of that desire to speak to the books that I loved and to evoke the characters that I loved. You know, sometimes people will say, so are your characters based on real people? And I'll say, well, yes, of course, partly. And they're based always on invented stuff from whole cloth and parts of myself are in any of them that I do very much work with. However improbable it may seem, they have a part of me in them. But another thing I think is one of the least obvious things maybe from the outside is I also base my characters on other writers' characters. Mm -hmm. I'm often so moved in just living with and thinking about someone. And Milkman and Guitar in that book are characters you could think about forever. Mm -hmm. So that procedure of just realizing that someone else's invented character has become a part of your life, like someone you think about as if you met them, can make you want to write a character yourself. Oh, that's lovely. Okay, we have a question from a Dylan, but probably not Fortress Dylan. <laughs> probably not. Asking what comics run you would be interested in writing liner notes for. Oh, wow. That's great. So this would be like a box set of a run of comics. Oh, and Dylan adds on, is the Marvel Bronze Age still your favorite? So, I mean, you got me dead to rights. Unlike a lot of art forms with literature, with books, novels, I read brand new ones all the time. And with music, I have a constant appetite, which I just feel grateful that I still feel this appetite for very new music. Mm -hmm. With comics, I'm a little entrenched in my, like Gollum with his ring, just rereading the same tattered 12 issues of Omega the Unknown and Jim Starlin's Warlock over and over again and trying to delve deeper into the mystery of what they meant to me at the time. And sometimes, of course, these aren't always extremely good comics that I feel that way about. They're just mine. They're the ones that shaped my brain. So I do still fetishize the Marvel Bronze Age, even though some of them disappoint you when you go back and subject them to serious attention. And therefore, I would probably write the liner notes to a collection of one of those eccentric. I think I would say maybe Jim Starlin's run on Warlock Mm. would be the answer because I already did enough with my other huge kind of cult favorite from that period, which was Omega the Unknown, where I actually got to write some issues of a comic featuring the character. And that's another case where the way that we think about this issue is very different now than it was when the book came out. There's been this giant run on the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all of these ideas about like the superhero (laughs) fantasy that are so different. Oh, don't get me started. It's so strange for me to have something that I experienced as a kind of a cult object and disreputable and marginal. And it seemed to ally me with the kind of this underground kind of 
greasy, creepy edge world. And now it's just this big, slick, plasticized monolith. You know, it's the McDonald's of storytelling, just 20 billion served. And it's just so everywhere. And it's more disagreeable to me than I want to admit. But sometimes people want me to have a really strong opinion on superhero movies. And the only strong opinion I have is that I don't think they're actually very much like the comic books. Mm -hmm. I think the two things are weirdly, secretly unrelated. Mm -hmm. They're just like, there's something about reading a page of a comic book, even if it's about a character that is, you know, now as inevitable, it seems obvious to us as Spider-Man or the vision in the Avengers. There's something very private and very enigmatic about the reading act of a comic book where you look at these words and drawings and, and you decide which one to look at in what order. And there are these gaps and you have to figure out how to read it. It's a very strange reality you go into. And I think these big movie experiences are a very different kind of art act <laughs> or cognitive experience. Mm-hmm. So before we finish up, I want to ask you one more question, which is, we're almost at the 20th anniversary of Fortress of Solitude. How would you hope people might approach the book 20 years from now? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, I hope they would be alive to the way it's become and will continue only more so to be a, a historical object. It wasn't really written the way historical novels are written, because I think those are novels that are written by people who didn't live through the time. And I, I'm almost 60, and I wrote a novel about a time that was still very alive to me when I wrote the book. But it was moving into the past, and it's now firmly in the past. And more and more, it's only possible to read the book as if it were a historical novel. And that's despite the fact that we still might like a lot of the music, you know, still dig Marvin Gaye and prisoners, or that people still write graffiti or t still take drugs or still go to prison or all the things might not still have their present analog. But this book is a piece of time now, mm -hmm. sealed up and growing increasingly strange as a result of our distance from it. That's lovely. It can grow increasingly strange and beautiful. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks very much. This was really special. Like I said, that you're still wanting to think about it 20 years later, and it means a lot to me. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. Vox podcasts are off all next week for our July 4th summer break, but check back in on Monday, July 11th for a brand new episode. 